0: What pops into your mind when you hear the word judge now that we're in the book of Judges? When you hear the word judge, do you think of the high Supreme Court? Do you think of black robes historically, the the black robes and the white wig that has been worn by judges in the past? Maybe you don't go there, but maybe you think of Judge Judy. I don't know if she still comes on. Anybody know if she still comes on in the afternoons? By admission, that means you watch it, okay? And there's Judge Judy normally chewing someone out in her courtroom. And one instance where um, it was someone uh, that she chewed out for kicking two cars and causing $1,600 worth of damage because he lost a poker game. And as you can imagine, Judge Judy did her job in putting him in the right place. But when we come to the book of Judges, we're not, we're not seeing judges who are wearing long black robes and, and white wigs and, and sitting uh, in a courtroom setting. These men and lady that we will see coming up are military leaders. They fight, they're strong, and they lead the people. And so we will look at the first three of the judges today that we see in Judges chapter three. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And our main focus will be on Ehud, but we will take a moment to look at Othniel and Shamgar. And this will kind of work in a twofold way, because within these judges, we'll ask the question, can can God use me? Can can God use me to lead and to be effective on this earth for his name's sake and telling people about Jesus? Can God really use me? And so, I hope that that is answered clearly for you in this message today. But then the second part of it, and most importantly, it's pointing to the greatest man of God's own choosing, Jesus. And in these three judges, we do see a glimmer. We see a shadow of the greatest judge to come, the great king to come and live among us, and that being Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, here we are in Judges chapter three, starting in verse seven in the title today is a man of God's own choosing. And it doesn't take long that once again, as we look into this book, we see the cycle that we talked about in week one together, that cycle of obedience and then temptation, and then sin, and then repentance. Back to obedience, temptation, sin, repentance. And and you may feel that you're on this wheel going uh, in circles all the time. And, And you may say, when will I be finished with this sin that I thought that would leave me the moment that I followed Christ Jesus, but it remains. I still struggle with this particular sin or with these many sins. And I find myself repenting of them. And then I'm walking obediently. And then all of a sudden I'm tempted with it once again. And I, and I just go right back to it way too easily. I think that's why we can relate to the people in the book of Judges. Because they are quick to disobey. And so wait, may we who live on the other side of the cross thousands of years later, not liquid judgment upon these who are in Canaan and say, shame on you for quickly disobeying because we're really no different than they are. And we are most blessed to have a clear view and picture of who Jesus is, the, the great Messiah who came and, and fulfilled the will of the Father. And this is preceding that. But we see that here they are in this cycle. Now God has promised them, God has provided for them. Let's be clear, God has not failed them in any way whatsoever. He has remained faithful to them. But we see in verse seven that here they go in this world once again. Follow with me. Judges chapter three, verse seven. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Verse eight. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, King of Mesopotamia. And so in verse seven, we see that they forgot the Lord. Did they just forget him due to amnesia? I mean, all of a sudden it just spread across the people that one day they wake up and they just forget the Lord. No, not like that. They forget the Lord because they weren't holding to his promises. They weren't living off of these promises day after day after day of him promising them that they would conquer this land, a land of milk and honey, and it would be their place to dwell forever. They had gotten their sights off of the one who promised them this land. And all of a sudden, they began to look to each other, thinking that they had accomplished this by their own selves. And so they forgot the Lord their God, and you say, "Well, maybe, maybe God would go light on them." But we see that God is jealous for His name, and so in verse eight, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. This word "kindle" is is like the kindling that you use for a fire. One day in my, in my backyard, um, I have a ceramic um, outdoor chiminea. Uh, I like saying that word, chiminea. And it's, it's kind of circled on the bottom and it comes up through this chute. And my dad had so graciously passed along a huge lighter stump for me, which for the past three years I've still been chipping away at <laughs> and gaining some lighter. And as I was chipping off pieces, I began to put it in the chiminea. And it wasn't, it wasn't lighting fast enough for me. And only had this chimney about eight feet from my house, okay? And I began to put one piece of lighter in and then another piece of lighter, and it began to get hot. And I'm like, okay, this is good. But I put just these huge chunks. I'm talking about this big of lighter. In there. You would think I know better, but there's just moments where people question that. And, and all of a sudden, and I question that, and I put this slider in there, and, it's, and all of a sudden, fire starts coming forth from the chute. And I'm not just talking about a little off the top, four feet above the chute. Um, flames, not smoke, because the black smoke was going from there. All right. And if you know anything about lighter, when you light it, black smoke comes forth from it. And all of a sudden I'm beginning to panic because I'm going, this fire is out of control. I mean, it's in my sweet little chiminea, but now black smoke is going up. And I imagine that my neighbors are thinking, what is happening at the Anderson household? In fact, there was a, a nice man from across the street who comes and, and all I can see is the top of his head. And he says, hey, you OK over there? And I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. And I'm like, yes, sir. Just doing a little bit of yard work. It's all good. I got it. I normally just have a fire with water hose in hand. It's all good. It's all good. Thank you so much for checking, because he probably thought our house was on fire. Uh, but quickly, that small little kindling created this huge fire and darkness. And in this moment, God is so angry with his people, and He brings forth a darkness among them. And it's a scary moment. Sometimes we read in the scripture and we go, oh, that must've been really bad. This is frightening for them because they don't know that this is gonna only last eight years and then God is gonna so graciously provide them a judge. They don't know that. All they know is that they are being judged in the moment and that there's terror across the land. And the Lord's anger burns against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Kusha and rishathaim Now, how, how did he do this? How, how, does he, how does God sell people off? I mean, how does he trade with people? I mean, is there, is there money being exchanged here? No, he's taking his hand of protection off of his people. And he's allowing another territory, another people, another king to conquer them. He had been protecting them, but yet they thought they knew more than him and they didn't need him. And all of a sudden when his hand is off of them, he is selling them to someone else and this man was known as Kushan the doubly wicked Rishtham means double wickedness he was cruel and he was a, a powerful man and we look at the things that have happened over the last few weeks when it regards michigan state and teen doctors and all of that but There were things that you hate to even hear of spoken in the courtroom, but much worse things even, if you could only imagine, were happening under this leader right here. He, He comes from Mesopotamia, which in modern day, that's eastern Syria, which is most of Iraq as well, and Kuwait. And it's thought to be the most distant and most powerful invader during this period. And so God is bringing somebody across a lot of territory and land to come and conquer them. And the people served him for eight years. That's two two full terms. We know a lot can change in two full terms. And for eight years, they were under his power, his wicked control, his wicked schemes, his cruelty. And then in verse 9, we see that, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And we look at this passage, verse 9, and we say, all right, a, a time for repentance. The people are repenting, but we don't see a repentance among the people. It's just that they are crying out. They're sad, they're disgruntled, they're suffering. And and the same can be said for us when situations happen in our lives through sickness, maybe a lost job, maybe a relationship breakdown or breakup. And we can get sad, we can get angry, we can go through suffering. But in all of that, we still do not turn to God. We may point to God and say, God, You're responsible. Why would you do this to me? How come you're allowing me to go through this? I just don't understand it, God. I thought maybe you'd treat me better. But yet in this sadness, in this crying out, there's nothing here that alludes to their repentance. And so what we see is a picture of God having pity on them. Knowing that they would have this response, he still comes to save them. And so maybe we're not seeing repentance here. And know too that we can complain about our suffering and shortcomings with no concerns for repentance. It's not enough to be sad. It's not enough to be frustrated. It's not enough to suffer. But in all of these things, we would take notice that God is in control and that we repent and fully trust in whatever God is doing in our lives. And so he sends a man named Othniel, and this is a man of God's own choosing. The people didn't set aside Othniel and say, we we think he would be a good leader. Hey, won't you just stand up and let's go fight? No, God selects him. God puts him aside, and he's from the family of Caleb. We get a good picture of this in Judges chapter one, and Caleb says, hey, who will go fight in the winner receives my daughter Axel, because I named her so beautifully Axel. And he goes and he fights and he comes back and he receives his bride, Axel. So we learn about Othniel that he is a warrior. His name means the lion of God, which equals a hunter. He can be ferocious on the battlefield. He's just ready. Give me the command and let's go. So God sets forth his lion to save his people. He's experienced in war and he leads them to victory. And when we see, uh, you know, we see someone who is strong, who comes from a good lineage, who comes from a good background. And maybe you're the same way. Maybe you come from a really good background. You say, I come from a Christian home. I come from a a mom and a dad who love Jesus and have always taught me about Jesus. In fact, I can't remember a day when I haven't heard the name of Jesus. And to that, praise God, you should have no shame You should not feel ashamed that you were raised in a home like that. You should praise God that you were raised in a home like that. You offer no apologies for being brought up in a home where parents are ashamed of Jesus and you go, God, who am I to be brought up in this home? It's all by his grace. So praise him that you were. And here is Othniel who who comes from good offspring. But if we're not careful, we can read right over verse 10 and we can think that, oh, this is all because of his upbringing and because he's a righteous man. But in verse 10, we read that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So, why was he victorious? He was victorious because the Spirit of God, that being the Holy Spirit, not a different spirit in the Old Testament than in the New Testament, but the Holy Spirit came upon him and led him. So all glory is to God. So the picture here is that God sends trouble upon his people. And then he offers the leadership with Othniel, all from the spirit of God. So God's at work in all of this. And and, and if you're listening to this, you may go, okay, hold on, let me think for a moment here. Is God playing an omnipotent chess game? just moving people in place. Oh, you disobey? Oh, I'm going to take this guy over here and crush you. That's what I'm going to do. And yeah, now I'm going to take you and I'm going to crush him. And is God just up there playing this weird, sick game with the lives of people that he's created? It may appear that way. And you may think that when we say something like this, the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things. And immediately you jump to going, but if God's in control of all things, then how are all these things happening? And if he's sovereign over all of it, is he the one putting all the pieces in place? And and we could go into much detail on this, but but let me put it this way. His people are making real moves, turning against him through their own rebellious hearts. But this does not nullify, nullify his sovereign control over his people. And it does not diminish his love for them. And so that although he loves his people, this chosen people that he has taken from Egypt and he said, I'm gonna give you the land of Canaan, it is yours. Then he gives them the freedom to act and their freedom to act is bound by sin and they keep turning against him and turning against him and then he shows his righteousness to them and his judgment towards them and he takes his hand off and he allows these other leaders who are jealous of them to come in and invade And this is how God is sovereign over all things. And then when the point has been proven and testing them that they would look to him and call upon him and be saddened for what is happening, he intervenes. And in this case, he intervenes and sends Othniel. So God is not wicked. God is not unjust. And although he is over all things and controls all things, we have to trust in everything that he oversees and allows. And here Othniel is that man but notice their response, verse 11. So the land had rest 40 years. Wow, that's a long time, 40 years. You can forget a lot of things in 40 years. You can forget about our wicked, cruel leader in 40 years. In the same way, I mean, now you start talking to young people about World War II and the camps that were there in Germany and throughout. And you ask them, do you really believe that these camps existed? And and man, there's so many who would say, I'm not sure, I'm just not sure about it. I mean, quickly, we can dismiss things that have happened right before us. And yet 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz died. He was a great leader, but like all men born of the flesh, he died. And this is important for us to realize today that if you're putting your hope and trust in a person, they may be great, they may be godly, they may be leading well, but one day they will die too. And Othniel dies. And then in verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So you think, okay, they've learned a lesson, 40 years of peace, but then again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They just can't get out of this cycle. So he brings forth this man, Eglon. Eglon just sounds mean, doesn't he? Eglon. His nickname is the bull. And God sets the bull loose on his people. You see, he had had his common grace. Upon the land. There had been peace for 40 years. And when they turn against him, once again, when their physical leader dies, it shows that they had put more of their hope in Othniel than they had in God. And God can take his hand off and he can place his hand upon. And you can look around the world even today and go, things are really bad, but things can be much worse. And it's all under the control of the Lord. Be grateful that you live in the land that you live in right now due to his common grace. And here, God sets the bull loose. And here's what the bull did. He gathered the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. We not only see the results of a modern day failure to obey God, but also a previous failure to obey from an earlier generation. Moses had instructed Israel to annihilate the Amalekites because of the way they had treated God's people. they didn't and now they're having to face the Amalekites if they had been obedient they would not have faced this punishment but each generation is responsible for themselves so although like last week we talked about how important it is to raise up our children in the ways of the Lord it's also upon that child that they would be faithful he or she has to give an account for his generation, for how he or she is living. They just can't point to the previous generation and say, well, if you would have done this, yes, it's a both and. But each person is responsible as they stand before God. And in verse 13, the latter half, it says, and they took possession of the city of palms. And maybe, oh, that's nice. Maybe it looked like Florida with palm trees. This was Jericho. You remember Jericho. God says, I'm going to give you Jericho. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around one day and come back, and you're going to march around another day, come back. And then on the last day, you're going to march around seven times. Then you're going to shout, and the walls are going to fall down. I'm going to give you an easy victory. Just trust me. Can you imagine going back through Jericho, and now you're a slave, and you're looking at this place that was once yours, and now it's no longer yours, and you're going, wow, all we had to do was just march around and trust the Lord. We didn't even raise a sword for that wall to fall. And now here we are captive. How quickly things can change in a short amount of years. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years. And again, the people cry out. After 18 years of being dominated, finally they cry out. 18 years under this wicked ruler. And then they cry out. What are they doing for 18 years? Trying to figure it out themselves. What about us? When we give... Sin an inch and it's taken us a mile. How long does it take for you to look to the Lord and repent of that sin? Or are you trying to figure it out yourself? Are you trying to conquer it all by your lonesome? And then finally you realize, I can't do this, and it's getting darker, and it's getting darker, and it's getting harder. And then they cry out. And God provides another man of his own choosing, Ehud. In verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So we ask, oh, is God gonna send another lion? No, he's gonna call forth the lefty. Bring me the lefty from the bullpen right here, lefty. You mean the righty? We, we, we want a righty. No, I want the lefty. I want the lefty. What does this lefty have to offer? I am really curious because maybe you're offended if I poke fun at lefties, but I think you're awesome. So let me just say that right now. But how many of you by a show of your left hand in the room are lefty? Okay, so pretty much across the room throughout. All right. And I I know we, we feel your pain when you sit down at the table and you always want to sit at the end. Okay, so you can have that loose flying elbow. And then when you write letters... If you still do that and you smear across the page, we're so sorry that you have to deal with that. So sorry that everything is set up for us righties and it just goes in perfect form. You know, lefties actually present many challenges. And so although you're at a disadvantage, you you do have many advantages as well. And there's gonna be an advantage in this passage. But in playing baseball back in the day, when I was in ninth grade, and, and had an opportunity um, uh, to pitch when, when I was in high school. And so I loved throwing the old deuce, the old number two, which is what? It's a curveball. All right, and so I love throwing the curveball. And, and to righties, I like throwing the curveball. You know why? Because here's what my dad taught me. He said, son, when you're pitching and you throw a curveball to a righty, do you know where to throw that ball? Do you know where you throw the ball when you're throwing a curveball? At their head. And then it breaks, and you're trusting that the curveball's going to break. One day it didn't, popped the guy on the helmet. He got mad. I bowed up, said, you better be glad I didn't throw the fastball, right? Which as if that was any faster, but. But then when a left-hander would get up there, you didn't have that head to throw at. And so you had to have this imaginary batter in the right-hand box ball, having to deal with the left-hand batter. And I had a terrible time with left-handers. They loved hitting against me because I just served it up to them and it was easy. And and in this passage, although we're going to see a lefty who was at a disadvantage, he has a great advantage. And God's going to use his limitations for his glory. You see, before we get to this left-hander, we have to understand that the right hand is the hand that presents power and ability. God swears by his right hand, and his chosen one sits at his right hand presently. It's normal to fight with your sword, with your right hand. And Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin. You know what Benjamin's name means? Son of my right hand. And so he comes from a tribe of right handers, but he's left handed. And so maybe he felt like an outcast, but why is he left handed? If we were to look into the Hebrew, we would see that he had a limitation in his right hand. And so it's very possible that his hand was paralyzed or disabled in some way. But he was willing to accept his limitations. And this worked to his advantage as he carried his sword on his right side instead of his left side. So when he had to go through uh, the check through, uh, they, they didn't care about uh, his sword being on his right side. They were just looking to see, is it on the left? And he's able to go straight through. And this is the account. And I want you to read with me here in Judges chapter three, uh, starting in, we'll start in verse 15, because I'm afraid you would not believe me if I just told you this story without reading it to you. So read with me. Uh, Judges chapter three, starting in verse 15. We'll read a little little bit. We'll pause. We'll read again. Okay. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Girgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence and all his attendants went out from his presence and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Now, at this point, Uh, Ehud has the opportunity to meet before Eglon. Eglon says, okay, so you have a message for me? It's a secret message? Sure, I'll hear your secret message. He appears to be no threat. He's just a left-handed man. And so he invites him to the secret chamber, the cool chamber. And he says, I have a message from God. Now, that can be rather confusing because If he's bringing a message from Yahweh, God, then immediately Eglon would say, he's not real. Why would you bring me a message from him? But what Ehud is saying is that I have a message from Elohim. Elohim would be uh, just the generic term for God. So you say, okay, an all powerful God has a message for me. Yes, go ahead and speak this message. And in verse 21, Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And this is the word. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So he says, here's the message. Death right there. And he leaves the sword there. And I mean, this is a gross scene. If we're watching the movie, every one of us are turning our heads. And if you don't turn your head at that point, there's something messed up with you, right? And it's just a weird scene. You're going, wow, this is actually in the Bible. This is crazy. But yes, he did. And he kills Eglon right there on the spot in the cool roof chamber. And then he locks the doors behind him. And then in verse 24, when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Yes, that means we think he's going to the bathroom. And he's spending a significant time in there because of the smell that was coming forth. And they didn't have the ventilation systems back then. Verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. Okay, he doesn't have a cell phone to play with in there. What's going on, right? I mean, come out. They're embarrassed for him. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. I was reading that this week and I just paused and thought, wow. Their Lord, their King, he was a big man. Why? Maybe he didn't start out that way, being the bull. Maybe he was strong, but yet he had victory after victory after victory. And he began to take in the spoil and he began to spoil himself. And he got grossly out of shape. And it says he was a very large man, so much so in in this description, he was lazy. He depended on himself. Yet all the people still looked at him and said, you're the king, you're the boss, you're the man. And they open up the doors and he's dead. Here's the good news, Christian. The doors are never going to be opened up, and there is a dead Jesus. He's alive. Your hope is in someone who is living and alive, not someone who has been pierced and remains dead. This man remains dead on the floor, and they're quite shocked, as you can imagine, because they thought something else was going on in the meantime. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah, or Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet into the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Now not 40, 80 years, double the amount of time. So God used a man with limitations to do great things. And then we see a brief description of what we'll call the third judge, and this is Shamgar. Verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, if you're reading through the Bible in a year's time, and you may read right over that verse and never remember the name of Shamgar, but if we slow down a minute, we can actually learn some things here about this man. Shamgar was not a Hebrew name. It was a Canaanite name. And so could this be a representation of Gentiles? Anath is the name of the Canaanite God of sex and war. So he wasn't raised in a home like Othniel. He was a different kind of man, but yet God used him. And suggested by his weapon, an ox goad, we can take from it that there's a good chance that Shamgar was a peasant. He was a peasant. And so he didn't fight with a sword, although left-handed, right-handed, whatever, he fights with an ox goad. And an ox goad was a long wooden stick tipped with a metal point at one end, for prodding, and a metal blade on the other for cleaning the plow. Peasants used such a tool as they worked with their oxen in the fields. And we see that this man is courageous. He kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Quite impressive, quite gruesome, quite courageous of a peasant. And so we see a man who uh, comes from a righteous background. We see another man of limitations. And we see a man who is a peasant. What does this have to do with us? And how does this point to Jesus? Each leader showed great courage and strength. And you may look at your life and go, well, you know what? Good thing I was raised in a good home. That means good things for me in the future. You just can't ride with the things that happened in the past. You use those to continue to grow in Christ if you're a Christ follower. If you have a limitation in your life, and I don't know what that limitation may be, but you look at it as a limitation. You look at it as hindering you from being like everyone else. In fact, you may look at everybody else and go, I wish I was like them. I wish I didn't have this struggle. And see, the the hard thing for us is we may not even know that about each other because you're not outwardly showing any signs of this, but it may be inwardly that you're dealing with this limitation. And yet you struggle day after day after day thinking that other people are more important than you, that they just get life and that they just get Jesus better than you do. And you find yourself jealous at times, you find yourself very frustrated at times, you find yourself just not worthy to even try this thing called Christianity. Maybe that's where you are right now. And and maybe you have a physical limitation. Maybe you have a sickness in your life and you're going, I just don't see how God loves me through this. And God can use that limitation for his glory. It may seem weak, to you. It may seem weak to the world, but God will take that weakness and he will strengthen you and he will work mightily through you. And we're about to see how he does this through his son, Jesus. But then Shamgar, who is a peasant, who's fighting with an oxygoad, goad. And you may be traveling around town in a car. You go, this isn't fancy. I wish I had a fancy car. Everybody else seems to have a nicer car than I do. Man, if, Maybe if I had a nicer ride, I, would, I wouldn't feel like such a peasant. Maybe if if I was more athletic at school, that, that kids would accept me, and they wouldn't look at me as a nobody. I walk down the hall and nobody notices me. Nobody says my name. Um, I don't I don't have much interaction. When I get on social media, I put stuff out there, but nobody really responds, and I'm I'm waiting for them too. It just doesn't happen. Or maybe you look at your family background and, and, and the jobs that your family has had. You look at that and go, man, I, I wish I came from a family who had jobs like this guy over here. And, and all of a sudden, you, you begin to limit yourself because you're looking and you're going, I don't have much to offer at all. I'm very limited. I, you, you may say that, you know what, I'm, I'm not that smart, and I can't remember a lot of things. And so I get embarrassed when I'm sitting in community group or and when I'm talking with a group of people and we're talking about the Bible and I just can't recall things like they can. I feel like a peasant. Maybe you're sitting in math class and you're going, I feel like the most unsmartest person in the world. And I get you. I took the, the most basic math you could take in college to get through it and barely got through it, praise God. Good thing I just needed to know how to talk. <laughs> But we all have these areas where we may feel like a peasant. Maybe you don't feel like a peasant. Maybe you're going, I'm far from a peasant. Man, I'm too good for the peasants. And I think we can all learn something here that God will use anybody that he sets apart. And so whatever limitation you may have, whatever shortcoming you may have, whatever frustration you may have, and you're asking, I don't know if God can use me. He can use you because the most important thing about you is that his grace be upon you and his spirit be leading you. Is this true in your life right now? Are you faithfully following Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and his grace being displayed in the way you live your life? But see, if we stop there, then it would just be a good moral lesson and we have to be very careful that we don't treat the Old Testament like that, that we find some really good people in the Old Testament say, I like to model my life after them. Often they'll seem pretty good out of this bunch. I think I'll go with him. Or you know what? I like Ehud. I think I'm gonna go with his confidence. I may start eating left-handed from now on. Um, you, you look at Shamgar and you go, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to use some limitations here and I'm gonna show people that I can do a lot with very little. We would just walk away with some moral lessons and then you're gonna have failure and you're gonna be greatly disappointed. And then you're gonna get mad at Shamgar, right? You don't wanna be getting mad at Shamgar. But we take it further because the true purpose in this and what we're seeing is that it's pointing to Christ. And Jesus is the man of God's own choosing. God raised up a deliverer to save his people. And when we read in Isaiah 53 and you look upon this savior, he wasn't much to look upon according to the world. And as Othniel won Axel in J- Judges chapter one, it is Jesus who came and won the victory for his bride, the church, and he rescues you because you are his. He has made you his very own, not by your works, but by his works. Ehud, the lefty who is unexpected. In the same way, we see the Lord Jesus was unexpected. When he came, his own people, the Jewish people did not recognize him. He was a disappointment to them. When he says, my kingdom's not of this world, they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. We we don't like that talk. We want your kingdom to be of this world. Didn't help matters when he went to the cross because that was seen as foolishness. Jesus did not appear to be strong when he was nailed to the cross. So we see in Isaiah 53, but he, was, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So through his suffering and him coming in the form of man and appearing to be limited, because he didn't bring out a sword and start slicing people who weren't for his kingdom, he seemed weak, he seemed foolish. Let's nail him to a cross and get him out of here. But by him going to the cross, he accomplished victory. Ehu points us to Jesus and he also points us to ourselves. God uses a left handed deliverer, that being Jesus, to save a left handed people. All of us fall short, all of us fail, all of us need Jesus. First Corinthians one twenty-six through twenty-nine. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Verse twenty-seven, but God chose So here's what you can take from that. God, thank you for the way that I am. Thank you for my struggles. Thank you for my limitations. Thank you for where I fall short. God, thank you that you would save me, not based on any strength of my own, not based on anything that I had to offer, not based on anything that I have proved among other people. It's all your doing I have no boast in it of myself. The only boast I have is Jesus. And without Jesus, I'm going to be just like Israel here in Judges. And I'm going to keep going on this cycle and going on this cycle. And I'm going to feel bad about my sin. But I'm never going to feel like I need to repent of my sin. Jesus calls us to repent. To die to ourselves and rise up in Christ. Have you repented before a holy God? Of your sin, and have you truly trusted Jesus to be your Lord, to be your conquering King? Are you trusting Jesus every day, day by day by day? Are you finding your confidence and your boast in Jesus? What is the answer? If you're sitting there and saying, I don't know, I don't know if I follow Jesus, how can I know? Well, if you know that you are a sinner before God, confess that to him. And if you believe that Jesus came on this earth and died on a cross for your sin, confess that to the Lord and be saved. You say, that's it? Let me, let me join team Jesus. Let me do something to, to give my part. Let me bring something to the party. You bring nothing to it. You die to yourself and you receive everything in Christ Jesus. That is what we see in Jesus Jesus was the man of God's own choosing. And like the judges in Judges chapter 3, he died too. But unlike them, he rose from the grave and he lives today. Do you believe this? Or will you choose to complain about your suffering and your shortcomings with no concerns for repentance? Let your tough times, let your obstacles, let your limitations drive you to repentance. We don't know why certain things happen in our lives, why we face certain challenges, but everything that happens in our lives should drive us to Jesus. And whatever doesn't happen in our life, whatever happens that doesn't drive us to Jesus, there we find our idols. What are they? You know, following Jesus, it does lead us to be lowly like Shamgar, a peasant to, to bow down low and, and to before him to serve him. And to recognize this, that as the spirit of the Lord was upon off And that's where we give glory to, is all glory to God. In the book of Acts, we see that the Spirit of the Lord was upon the church. Same Spirit. He is upon us, and this is our confidence that the Spirit of God be upon us. You received this Spirit when you were saved. The Spirit acted first, and you woke you up, and you repented and trusted in God. The Spirit has been there. Trust in the work of the Holy Spirit every day of your life. And so finally, Whether you are like an Othniel or an Ehud or Shamgar, you can be used by God because Jesus is the man of God's own choosing. Do you trust in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through your word today we gain our confidence. Whether we're like an Othniel or an Ehud or a Shamgar, whether we can't even look at these judges, but we look at the people who were just disobedient. We find ourselves very much like them. Father, I pray that whatever it may be, that we would look to Jesus and that our confidence would be in Christ, our boast would be in Christ. Lord, I ask that you would save people who do not know you, Lord, that they truly today have faith in Christ. They want to follow Jesus. Work mightily, Lord, and those who do not know you today. They will know you and follow. I pray for those who do know Christ and are following Christ, but yet they're struggling in this cycle of sin that we see repeated in, in the book of Judges. May we be encouraged today that Jesus has accomplished the great victory for us. And though he died, he rose from the grave. His dying was necessary so that we could die to ourselves and rise up in his resurrection and live. And so, Lord Jesus, work mightily through your church this week. May we go forth in boldness and remind ourselves that we are not a defeated people, that we have victory in Christ. Thank you for the man of your own choosing, Jesus Christ. So in his name we pray, amen.